Good morning, guys. Why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Isaiah 40. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, uh, you know that we started about two weeks ago. This is the third week. Um, uh, message series going through looking at the subject of Advent. Um, what we've been saying is that Advent really is a season in the history of the church. It's not necessarily a biblical season or biblical holiday, but it's one in which the church has done as a way of uh, causing our minds to re-engage with the story of the gospel every year to kind of follow certain aspects of this church calendar. In this time, obviously, we spent about four weeks coming up to Christmas really re-engaging with that story and trying to remind ourselves of, of what that means, that God came into this world. I mean, I think the reason why we do this is, uh, is, is important because if we don't do it, I think the tendency for us is to receive sort of a, uh, an alternative story about what Christmas is all about. Um, and we don't even have to do that by way of um, thought process or imagination or even intentionality. In other words, it's forced upon you, all right? Here's what I mean. Is that the message that's forced upon us without even having to try is one of consumerism, is one of buy more, is one of accumulation, is one of just, uh, you know, simple trinkets about Christmas. And we miss the real story. And so the idea behind this is to really engage our minds, our hearts, our thoughts into the story of what God has done for us. God's come into this world in Christ to redeem and restore and bring healing to people like you and I that are broken. So that's, that's the big idea. That's really what we're trying to do. Uh, we've been in a series in the book of Acts. We're going to get back into the book of Acts as soon as we're done with this season. Um, right now we're on week three. We've been looking at basically four weeks of subject matter, and each one is kind of themed according to the life of Jesus. Light and darkness will be next week. Last week, we looked at healing from, dis- healing from decay. Uh, the week before that, um, home from exile. And today, we're going to be taking a look at the subject of um, comfort in sorrow. So the story that we're going to pick up this morning is in the book of Isaiah. So if you guys don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. Um, it's a familiar passage to some of you that are maybe uh, comfortable with reading the Old Testament. It's kind of a big book. Um, but the reality is that this is a really prominent theme or message that rises in the book of Isaiah. Uh, as I begin to read it, some of you will be like, oh, I remember that. In fact, if you're familiar in any way, shape, or form with music, especially Handel, especially Handel's Messiah, this will, like, you'll be like, oh, that's where that came from. Like, Handel didn't write that? No, actually, Handel, like, borrowed that from Isaiah. And um, it's, uh, hence the name Handel's Messiah. So the point of the matter is, is that this is a really important uh, passage that points forward to uh, God's aim in what we would call redemptive history, which is a big theological mean, uh, word that means God's history in which he enters in to bring about some healing and redemption or restoration. So um, we'll pick it up at verse 1. We'll read down about verse 11. I'll pray, and then we'll begin to take a look at some of what this story is about, and we will actually end in the New Testament, in the Gospel account, in the life of Jesus, which seems to be a great place to end, especially since Advent is about Jesus anyhow. So, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, I'll start there, it says this, Isaiah is a prophet, and he's imagining a future of what God will one day do, and he starts this little message that God gives him by saying, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain 
and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places will become plain. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. A voice says, cry. And then I said, what shall I cry? All grass is flesh and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And surely the people are all as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, and herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in the bosom and he will gently lead them that are with young. Let's pray. God, this is your word and we bring our hearts to you this morning and we just say we want you to shape our hearts in a fresh new way. God, those of us that are have our lives being choked out by anxieties and fears and brokenness and maybe even our own sin, our own feeling of inadequacy, our own brokenness. God, we pray that you would allow this message of Isaiah to break in upon our lives, break in upon the darkness of our hearts and breathe life. So God, we commit this time in your hands and we pray that you would help our eyes to be open to see Jesus and we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I want to look at three things this morning in the text, and really even kind of in a broader sense, the entire book of Isaiah. So the three things that we'll take a look at are, first of all, um, Israel becomes sort of this large uh, case study of constant brokenness and sorrow. So we'll take a, look, take a look, first of all, at the people of Israel. Secondly, we'll take a look at the promise of comfort that Isaiah makes. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, we just read that. It starts out with this introduction, comfort, comfort. And typically, God, all he really needs to do is say one thing once, but when God repeats himself, um, it's, it's important for us to stop and listen, right? Remember when you were a little kid and mom called your name, but when mom said your first and middle name or said your name twice, it was time for you to put down your Game Boy and like listen and pay attention. Mom has something of great significance and important to say. Importance to say. It's same thing with God when God says comfort, comfort twice. It's God's way of saying, look, I, this is really important. This is significant. It's going to happen. And then we'll take a look at finally the glory that has come, obviously in the person of Jesus. So I'll uh, reveal obviously the punchline there. Um, spoiler alert: It's uh, we already know the story uh, ends in Jesus. So. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first of all, I want to take a look at a little bit of the subject of uh, the people of sorrow. Because what we have here in this uh, little passage that we read in Isaiah chapter 40, and there's a lot of scholarship debate or scholarly debate as to when Isaiah 40 was actually penned. Some scholars actually disagree and think that um, Isaiah was written in different chunks by different authors, actually. Um, I think some better, personally, some better scholarship thinks that Isaiah was written by Isaiah. And uh, even though it may have been written over different periods of times. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that um, almost all scholars would recognize that there's, there's a break between Isaiah chapter 39 and chapter 40. That there's been this long storyline, Isaiah chapter 1 all the way to chapter 39. That is this long storyline of, of Israel. It's this story of Israel's history. In fact, 
Um, the entire Old Testament, beginning from Abraham, is really, for the most part, uh, I should say, probably more picking up from the time of the Exodus, is the story of Israel. And if you've ever read any of the Old Testament, you realize that it's not a good story. It's not a, like, happy, chipper story. It's a story of a lot of brokenness. It's a story of a lot of sinfulness. And so, in short, you can think of it this way. Israel is really this case study of greed and corruption and injustice and uh, underscored by Israel's distrust in Yahweh. And in all of this, if you think of it this way, if you're kind of making somewhat of an equation, it's like this. Uh, corruption, injustice, distrust in Yahweh equals... Sorrow, like that, that's, that's the equation. And that's the story of Israel. I mean, chapters 1 through 39 of the book of Isaiah is this ongoing narrative of Israel's uh, brokenness, Israel's breaking covenant with Yahweh, Israel's distrust in Yahweh, Israel's selling out of, um, of who they are as a people, Israel uh, living in a very corrupt fashion, corrupt way. In other words, rather than promoting justice, Israel was actually promoting injustice. People were lying. People were being, having their morals disfigured and disjointed and broken. And Israel is basically living, in short, like every other nation. And as a result of that, um, Israel was constantly in this uh, place of uh, uncertainty as to where their future is, is headed. There was constant anxiety that would basically define the people of Israel. And so you come to Isaiah chapter 39... And uh, what, what you find is that in the context of the whole long story, the narrative of Isaiah, is uh, what you have with this great book is um, this guy by the name of Isaiah who's called a prophet. He speaks forth certain things from God, but it's also interwoven into this narrative of the people of Israel's history. And so by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 39, what you have is the introduction of this guy, actually a couple of chapters even prior to that, this guy by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a king of uh, Israel, of the region called Judah. And so Israel at this point is a divided nation. So think um, America, uh, pre-Civil War, um, you have the north and the south, that type of a distinction or divide. There's all sorts of angst and anger and frustrations against the two different warring nations. And so you had this guy by the name of Hezekiah. And so Israel, for the most part, was making a lot of bad decisions as a nation. Uh, again, like I said, which basically led to their greed and their corruption and injustice and all underscored by their distrust in Yahweh. Because rather than trusting God, they were making all of these, uh, these, these uh, flamboyant um, uh, claims of their greatness and whatnot. But what, what you end up having was this guy by the name of Hezekiah. He becomes the king. And so... Um, there was this threat of this uh, invading nation called, or I should say even an empire called Assyria. So if you're familiar at all with history, you know that there's this massive empire called Assyria. And they were brutal. They were, uh, for the most part, a, an empire of terrorists. And when they would invade a country, the way that they would invade was, was by terrorizing, by killing, by murdering, by beheading. Um, by terrorizing, and people that they didn't murder or destroy, they would basically try to impregnate the women to basically erase uh, that nation. Um, it, was, it was literally like, like genocide. It was an attempt to completely wipe out an entire nation. So this was the impending threat that this king, Hezekiah, and his nation, his people lived under, was what's going to happen with Assyria? Uh, how vulnerable are we to Assyria um, how much confidence and hope do we have that tomorrow we're going to have our farm? What hope and confidence are we going to have that, you know, three years from now, I'm still going to be married and my family's not going to be dispersed around the nation 
or my children will be impregnated or my wife will be married off to somebody else and I'll be laying on the ground beheaded because of this nation, this threat. And so Hezekiah basically is looking for alliances to somehow hedge their bets, to protect what they have. And so he forms this alliance with this, this ruler over this nation or empire that's rising. It hasn't kind of reached its climax yet. It was an empire that was called Babylon. So most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Babylon. So in Isaiah chapter 39, some of the leaders of Babylon come to um, the region of Judea, and they intermingle with this guy by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, most scholars would agree that he's basically trying to forge an alliance with the Babylonians. So if you think about it this way, the people of God are basically trying to form an alliance with uh, pagans to somehow protect themselves against the threat of in another terror state. Is it, you guys following here? So this is what's happening. So uh, this leader comes to Hezekiah, Isaiah 39, and says, show me what you got. And Hezekiah's like, great, I would love to show you everything I got. So here's where we keep our gold. Here's where we keep our silver. Here's where we keep all of our vast array of uh, high-tech you know, swords and weaponry. And then later on, Isaiah basically asks um, Hezekiah, he's like, hey, I noticed some delegate from Babylon came, and, and what do you want? He's like, oh, he wanted to see where all of our gold was at and all of our silver and all of our weaponry were. And Isaiah's like, well, what'd you do? He's like, I showed him everything. Hezekiah's like, Isaiah's like, you are stupid. Like, do you realize by doing that, they know every secret about us now? By doing that, you've sealed our doom. And so Isaiah basically says, we're dead. In years to come, Babylon's going to come in, invade us, and we're, we're dead. And that's exactly what happened. It was about 150 or so years later, again, depending upon when you see this was actually written. Um, they basically find themselves under the dominion of the Babylon Empire. So to bring you into the context of the story, what you have is Israel that has lived this long uh, history of rebellion against God, of corruption, of distrust uh, with regard to Yahweh, of injustice, of uh, immoral behavior, so on and so forth, um, and really at the end of the day defined by discomfort or brokenness. Um, and now they're living with this impending threat of terror. All right, Some of us were like, that sounds really familiar to like the world we live in right now. Um, and like, yeah, exactly. It's not too dissimilar. But the point that I would make is this, is that it's in the midst of that moment of chaos that Isaiah 40 comes onto the scene, and he begins to speak comfort, comfort to my people. So first of all, we see the people of sorrow, defined by brokenness, and you can't really have a message or a good, uh, tangible message of comfort apart from a feeling of desperate sorrow. And you really can't have a poignant message of hope apart from the reality of grief. And this is where Israel was. They found themselves in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief, and it was because of that the message of comfort resonated with them. And that may be true for you. Some of you right now would look at your lives and say it's defined by discomfort and sorrow and grief and loss and brokenness and ruin. Well, you're in the very spot where comfort then begins to become something that's at least longed for or appreciated or desired. And this is where the story of Christmas comes in. So next thing I want to take a look at is really this promise of comfort because that's where Isaiah then begins to speak forth. Now, again, I mentioned earlier, Isaiah was a prophet. And prophets are this kind of weird breed of people that, for the most part, 
would wait on God. They would listen to God. God would then speak to them, and they would record what they had uh, received from God. And so um, sometimes the message was strong and combative, and it was confrontative uh, messages that would basically say, look, you as a nation or you as a king or you as a people group are not living in relationship to God, and as a result of that, you will face um, judgment and brokenness and destruction. And then sometimes, in this case, Isaiah chapter 40 in particular, um, the prophet actually imagines what would life look like if Yahweh were to really be God and to really become king and take measures and charge over this entire situation. Now, every prophet recognized already that God was king. Um, it wasn't a matter of like, well, God, would you one day become king? They already knew that God was king. But really the hope of every one of the prophets was, God, would you bring your kingdom reign here now? Because we need it. We need justice in the place of injustice. We need healing in the place of the corruption that's rampant all around. We need wholeness in the place where there's nothing but chaos. And this is what they would imagine. We need comfort in the place of our discomfort and our brokenness. And that's what Isaiah speaks of, is he envisions, imagines a day in which God's comfort would come. So there's two passages I really want to look at in this idea of the promise of comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1, which we just read again, just to think about it again. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So we have here this picture of God breaking into the scene of Israel's history, which has this long, like I said, history of corruption, destruction, turning against God, violence as a nation, hatred, greed, all of these things. And God basically comes on the scene and says, speak tenderly to them. They're my people. We would imagine God to be angry all right, there are times, again, like I said this last week, there's times when God, like this lion, roars, and his roar is absolutely terrifying. But in this context, God says, no, no, speak tenderly to Israel, Jerusalem. And in verse 9, he goes on to say, Zion, it's a message to Zion, he says, go and be messengers of good news. Shout from the mountaintop, shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. And the question is, what are they to shout? What's the message that's a big deal? Right, Because apparently, according to Isaiah, he's like, look, this is a really, 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 really big deal what you're to go out and shout. It's so, such a big deal. You're to climb to the highest mountaintop, climb to the highest part of the city wall, and shout it. All right? So if you can think about it this way, back in that day, that was equivalent to Twitter. <laughs> it was equivalent to updating your Facebook profile. Um, back in that day, they did not have social media. Their social media was the wall of the city or the top of a mountaintop and a trumpet in your hand. So you'd imagine you'd basically bank on the acoustics of the surrounding environment. And if your job was to announce um, good news or announce bad news, for example, like, you know, there's all, you can imagine if you live in a walled city, they don't have speakers, they don't have you know, other types of mass means of communicating information, um, you would basically do it by way of a bell or a trumpet, or you would find some spot that had good acoustics, and you would shout and yell as loud as you can. But the message that Isaiah says, here's what I want you to go out and shout, is this. Your God is coming. And what's, what's God doing? What's he going to do when he comes? And this is where it gets even amazing, more amazing. He says, yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power, and he will rule them with a powerful arm. So on one hand, we see that God's arm is powerful. It's probably a, a metaphor, an image of how God will rule, meaning he's a powerful God. He will overcome all sorts of other obstacles and apparent forms of power. 
We'll get more on that in just a moment. But God, whoever God's reign, or however God's reign will come, un, come to pass, it will be with power, and it will be with a powerful arm. But it's not just power that's unleashed. If you think about power being unleashed in a form of violence, that's not at all the type of power that God brings. He goes on and clarifies what type of power and how God, how Yahweh uses his power to reign. He goes on to say, verse 11, he says, he will use his power, if I can use that context, he will use his power to feed his flock like a shepherd. Think about this for a second. The imagery of a shepherd with his flock comes into view now. So the picture is, how will God use his power? He will use his power in such a way so that he will actually be able to, with his hand, the same powerful hand that Isaiah just described in verse 10. With this hand, he will feed the flock. When I read this, I think of going to Avila Valley Barn. Uh, I have two girls, and when they were really young, we would go to Avila Valley Barn, and we would go feed the uh, goats and the sheep and all those other things. But one of the things I discovered, uh, we also have some deer that come up in our yard, but I've not been able to feed them out of my hand yet. I try. I've tried many, many times. They always run away from me, no matter how slowly I walk up to them. The point of the matter is I've discovered that anytime you try to feed some sort of animal, whether it be domesticated or whatever, uh, you realize you have to move really slow and be careful. Otherwise, they are skittish and they might run away. And we're told that Yahweh feeds his flock she tells us a little bit about the posture of how Yahweh comes. It comes in a form of vulnerability, slowness, carefulness, and he feeds them like a shepherd. He says he will not only just feed them with his hand, in other words, not just simply laying out a hand, giving them, but he also uses his hand in such a way whereby he will carry them in his arms, holding them close to his heart. This is the imaginations of Isaiah, the prophet. This is the picture. This is the song. In fact, uh, lots of scholars believe that this is actually written as a song. The idea behind it is written in such a way to imagine what would it look like when Yahweh takes charge over our discomfort and loss and grief and brokenness and fears and anxieties. Well, he says he will come. When he comes, you can take comfort and you should announce it. You, can, you should, should announce it over the intercom networks that you have, over all sorts of means that you can. Find a mountaintop. Find some place to announce it. Because when he comes, he will stretch out his arm. It will be a powerful arm. But it won't just be a powerful arm that's raw power, that's destructive power. It will be a powerful arm. That will actually bring healing to those that are vulnerable, like sheep. This is what Isaiah envisions, imagines. It's this promise of comfort. It's this hope that one day, one day, Yahweh will move over our brokenness and in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our insanity and bring some level of calm, bring some level of healing. Which leads me to the last thing. And we see this concept of this glory that has come. Now again, like I said, the idea is going to end up or take us to the story of Jesus. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, gives us really interesting insight into this. Uh, he tells us that the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. So think about this passage. Um, what Isaiah is telling us is that the coming of God, coming of Yahweh to bring comfort to a discomforted and broken and unwhole people will be one that will have global impact. In other words, it will impact and affect all people. Um, we know that in the book of John, Jesus describes, he says that he is the glory of God. 
Um, so we already begin to see these pictures, these images that Jesus describes himself as the glory of God, which really is it's his way of basically saying that, that I am the fulfillment of this hope of comfort, this hope of life that God had promised long ago to rebellious, broken, sinful Israel that deserved nothing except judgment, and yet God is making good on his promises. But the question is, to what extent has Yahweh made good on his promise of comfort? And this is where we come to the New Testament, because really what we see is he says, all flesh will see it together. So I was thinking about that, meditating upon that passage. I think that there's a lot of things that we oftentimes think in our lives, in our brokenness, that we will end up seeing, all right? Um, there's uh, fears that we all think, especially the media would have us believe for the most part, all will see the terror of ISIS. Maybe, but probably not. It's very likely that there's many of us that will never, ever be impacted by that, but that is not an excuse to live without any type of vigilance. We should all, obviously, always be vigilant. But the tendency is to think, now, all live under this cloud of fearfulness, but, or all will see the death by way of cancer. All will see the power of debt crush you. All will see the, the tangibility and the brokenness of divorce uh, I remember thinking that that was my life when I began to think about getting married because my family is divorced and when I was first wrestling with should I marry my wife, I remember thinking I don't want to ever get married because I watched what divorce did to my dad. It's the last thing I ever want to do, the last thing I ever want to enter into. I was completely cynical and didn't want to do that. And so in my mind, I believed the script that all will see the divorce of mankind. And I'm like, but now what... what, what Isaiah is saying that, no, all will not necessarily see all of these other things, but all will see the glory of God. All will see the glory of God. And so what we see is this hope, this promise that Isaiah is promoting. Why don't you turn real quick to the book of Luke, because this is where the story begins to move us, is that we see that God's comfort, uh, this promise, this hope of God's comfort, actually comes to both fearful and sorrowful and broken people by way of two, two avenues. On, on the one hand, it comes by way of glory, because he said, all will see the glory of God. But we also see it's not just glory. Uh, because when I think of glory, especially in the context of Bible passages, um, Isaiah chapter 6 is this passage of intense glory. In fact, it's so glorious that when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord, it, he says he falls on his face as if he's basically dead. So when I think of the context or the concept of glory, I think of this this uh, unapproachable uh, power and light of God that is in some ways repelling. Like, on the one hand, it's like, I'm curious to know about it, but on the other hand, I, I, I feel the need to shield myself from this powerful glory. But it's not just glory. It's through gentleness. The gentleness of a shepherd relationship to vulnerable sheep. And it's really only in the story of Jesus that we see to what extent... God has gone to reveal, to bring forth, and to fulfill his promise to Isaiah and to the other prophets who have written about this in the past. This is where we are introduced to the story of Luke, Luke chapter 3. Some of you guys are obviously familiar with the life of John the baptizer. Um, And what we're told in the story of Luke chapter 3 is this really fascinating story. In fact, for some of us, we're going to read this, and it's not going to really make a lot of sense, but uh, hopefully I'll unpack it a little bit just to think about this. It starts off in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip tetrarch in the region of that place and that other place, and Licinius and whoever that guy is over that other particular region. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to none of them, but came to John. And he happened to be in the wilderness. <laughs> the word of God didn't come to the power broker came to this little unknown dude who's crazy out in the place where nobody would have ever expected. We read these names, honestly, this is kind of, as I was meditating, thinking about this this past week, um, these names, a lot of ways, they kind of read like this opening crawl of the movie Star Wars, right? It says, in a galaxy far, far away. And there's the rest of these words. How many of you actually like, took the time to read them? How many of you actually, if you took the time to read them, remember them, right? Nobody. In fact, maybe I'm speaking for myself. Remembers those things because it's, it's in a galaxy far, far away. That's, that's the big idea behind it. It's like, it's completely, doesn't make any sense to my life. So we read a list like this, and we're like, Pontius Pilate, Tiberius Caesar, and Herod, and Philip, and whoever this other guy is, can't even pronounce his name. All of these people are, have absolute, there's, there's no connection between me, my life, 2015, and these people. But if you lived in the first century, and you had this read to you, or you had the ability to even read, when you read this, these names would have been names that would have struck terror, because these were the power brokers of the day. These were the terrorists of the day. These were the occupying agencies and military might and powerhouses of the day. These were the ones that when they flexed, you fell on your face or you died before them. These were the ones that played powerhouse in that context. And these were the ones that for the most part, he says that in that day, the word of God didn't come to any of them, but it came to John. I was kind of wondering, like, what, what would it be like if you lived under the life of Tiberius Caesar or lived under the name of some of these people or some of the, these images or these depictions of powerful occupying forces? I've wondered if the people of Judea and their, the power and the reach and the tyranny which these people had given had, had left the people of Judea feeling completely inescapable from their reach of power. So in other words, saying the names of these people in here, living for a century, you would feel the crippling effects of, oh yeah, that's right. They're the powerhouses of the day. They're the ones that are in control. They're the ones that chart the course of history. They're the ones that set in motion culture and society and everybody else just simply bows down to it. They're the ones that have supreme, ultimate power. But then they began to think about this, like, if I were to ask the question to like every one of you, what or who in your life, in your circumstances, that if you were to think about it this way, what are those things that you feel that have so much power so as to feel, you feel completely inescapable from their reach? What are the things that when you think about them in your mind, they feel oppressive? All right, for some of you, it might be like, a person's name, maybe a father or a mother or someone who offended you or did something uh, deeply hurtful to you at some point in your life. It could have been a, a spouse, a divorced spouse. It could have been uh, a, a family member, someone that you knew who did something horrible against you. It could have been a, a leader of a church. 
What are the names? Who are the people? What are the things that at some point, when you think about them, they strike terror in you? In a sense, there's a feeling of oppressiveness that they imagine, uh, immediately embody over you. That's how it would have felt to these people in the first century, reading this little story of hope breaking in. In other words, if you were to name them, what are the things that keep you bound? Maybe a person's name, maybe cancer, maybe some incurable disease, maybe loneliness because in your heart you are not convinced you're ever going to find a companion and get married, maybe uh, barrenness, you'll never have a child, so the feeling of never having a child is this overwhelming, powerful feeling that you are completely inescapable, unable to get away from, and every time you think of that, you feel the shame and the guilt and the problems that go along with that, that's, that's how these people would have felt. And it's in the midst of that that Luke tells us, the word of God comes not to the power brokers, not to the ones that oppress, not to the uh, occupying military forces, but to John. And what it goes on to tell us is really fascinating because it ties in back to the story of Isaiah. It tells us, Jump down, verse 4, it says, uh, and it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah. Obviously, chapter 40, which we just read, the prophet. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level. And all flesh will see the glory or the salvation of God. What I think Isaiah, as well as Luke, who's telling us the story, is for us, it shows us that no matter what types of forces there are in our lives, no matter how far the reach may feel, if we were to sort of write this into our context today, we would probably write the story something like this. Uh, in the seventh year of Barack Obama, Jerry Brown was governor of California. It was the third year of the reign of terror by ISIS insurgents. America was in a constant state of uncertainty and insecurity. And I was crumbling. And the word of God came to me and said, all flesh will see the salvation of God. And it's in Christ that we see this come to its fulfillment. I was reading the sermon this past week and it was awesome. It was actually on this particular text and it was cool the way this person described it because it said the only reason really why we even know any of these people's names uh, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate Herod, Philip, the other guy who can pronounce his name, the only reason why we even know these people's names, the only reason why we know these people's names is because every single one of them which is a footnote to Jesus <laughs> there's just a footnote to Jesus But I was wondering, what would it look like if you or I were to name those inescapable power brokers that if we were to really be honest with ourselves that at their name, when we think of them, it does nothing but register fear inside our body. A sense of sorrow, a sense of brokenness, that if we were to just speak their name and as a result of that or after that name just simply say footnote. ISIS, footnote. All right, Tiberius Caesar, he's just a footnote. And this is not to minimize the things that create chaos and pandemonium and fear 
and destruction and hurt and sorrow within your lives. It's not to minimize those things, but it's to rightly order those things to see Jesus for who Jesus is. Does that make sense? At the end of the day, this is why the writer of Revelation, John the Apostle, describes, in that day, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, because these former things have passed away. That's John's way of saying every one of these will be a footnote one day to King Jesus. And Christmas, a season, Advent, it's a time to reflect upon how big is our God, how great is our God, how faithful is our God to keep his promise. To not necessarily remove discomforting things in our lives, but to come to us in the midst of those discomforting things and to be with us. That's what Christmas is all about. It's a celebration that God has not abandoned us. It's a celebration that God has not simply turned his back and walked away. And the reality is that what we see is that God comes to us not just by simple platitudes or by nice sentimental thoughts or nice advice, but he comes to us in the flesh. And he sits with us in our sorrows. A few uh, weeks back, um, crazy long story, which I won't go into, um, my wife and I spent an entire half day in the emergency room because uh, something had happened to her, which she's fine now, by the way. But, um, um, and, and we just sat there like all day long waiting for these tests to be done. And it was just like long and grueling and traumatic and terrifying and, uh, because the outcome, if it was bad, would have been really bad. And it turns out that they did this thorough thing and it was like, she's fine. So anyway. But the whole time, a good friend of mine just, just was there, the whole time. Just, just sat there, the whole time. Just talked with us, prayed over us, just laughed with us. And, and I remember just walking away once we finally got the final like, test done, and like, she's good to go, and we walked away out of that thing. I just said, you know, that was amazing. It was so cool that he just came and just sat with us. I mean, it was, just, it was with us. You know, he didn't, he didn't like, like, try to like, force us to not feel terror or be scared or whatever. He, he, just, he just sat there with us. He was with us. There's something very comforting about the fact of just knowing that someone comes with us in the midst of our sorrow. This is what Christmas reveals. It's the story of God not abandoning us, but coming to us. But it's really at the cross we see to what extent God has gone to really take upon himself our sorrow. Because it's in that context that even Isaiah says that so great did God take upon himself the aim to bring about our healing, that says that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. One scholar describes it this way. He isn't just simply not acquainted with us in terms of like a handshake. He runs and he embraces grief to the point of embracing. If you think the image that comes to mind is, is giving a full frontal hug, not a side hug, full frontal embrace to death, sorrow, shame, destruction, self, to the point of the grave dies, but then he rises again, and this is the story that God invites us to be part of, so in summary, I want to invite you to consider, to worship, to realign your hearts, to consider the depths of actions God has gone to, to redeem and restore us, I was reading something this past week, which is great, I'm going to have the worship team come on up right now, and just finishing this train of thought, 
the guy was basically describing that what we need to do is we need to pray for the conversion of our anxieties because he was saying how um, it's in the conversion of our anxieties that uh, anxiety converted actually becomes hope. I like that. That's kind of a cool way to think about that. Like, our anxieties are these paralyzing things that oftentimes if we give into them, no matter what is leading them or guiding them or coaching them along, whether it be the fear of uh, you know, an ISIS terror attack, the fear of you know, uh, the, the GOP taking office or the fear of the Democrats taking office or the fear of whoever taking office, whatever side of the map you're on, whatever your great fear is, the reality is, is that we have a God that breaks through all of this and says, I'm going to come be with you in the midst of your brokenness and hurt and sorrow. Take upon myself your shame, your brokenness, your sin, your rebellion, and in your place, make you whole. And that's why we partake of communion. It's a way to remind ourselves the extent which God has gone, that God literally was broken for us who are broken, who live in broken lives. We live in broken relationships. Anyone here without broken relationships? No. Didn't think so. We all are broken people. We all break people. We are all part of broken relationships. And what we have is a God that comes into our brokenness. He's broken himself as a means of making us whole. This is the type of comfort God brings us in the midst of our sorrow. So let's pray that our anxieties would be converted, be turned into hope, not just simple optimism, not just simple like, hey, future's going to be better one of these days. I think so. I hope so. Keep my fingers crossed. But hope that is fixed in the reality that God conquered our greatest enemy, death. That he realigns our sorrows, not by just simply telling us life's going to get better, but by actually going to the very source of those sorrows, rebellion, greed, sin, and death, and dealing with it. And then invites us to trust him. So that's what I want to do for you, is I want to invite you to respond to this God, to worship him. So we're going to sing, we're going to respond, take communion. Um, why don't we all stand and let's sing. Fix our hearts, our minds, our thoughts on God. Let's use our bodies as instruments. Um, you know, as I read earlier, that Isaiah passage, that is a summons to you know, find some housetop, some mountaintop, and shout, right? Shout, Yahweh's God, right? To the, in the life of Jesus, we see to what extent God has gone to demonstrate his great reign. The name Jesus literally means Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. And so we celebrate. So let's, let's shout with our might. Let's use our bodies as instruments to proclaim God's greatness, okay? If you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything, we're going to have some people over off the side. Let's just lift up our voices and worship him with all we got. Sound good? He's worthy of it, right? Let's do it.